Welcome to Soccer 101, where we answer the questions to which you never knew you wanted the answers. Or maybe you did. Stick around to find out. With the new European seasons on the horizon, we're seeing lots of new jerseys. So today, we're talking about kits, their history, how they came to be, how they've evolved, and some of the most famous strips in soccer history. My name is Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is your friend and mine, Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> Hello. I was waiting for the, like pun-themed introduction, and I'm glad it didn't come, because there's way too many things to talk about, Ryan. We've got a ton of, of content to get to today. Taylor, don't you know where you are? You are in Soccer 101. We get to business quickly here. Ah, try course, to anyway. of course. I think I also referred to what we're going to be talking about as content, so I'm kind of stepping on Joe's turf already. <laughs> well, yeah, let's talk to Joe. He's been slinging tent for us for quite a while. He's here today. <laughs> I, I talk about Messi's move to PSG one time, and this is what happens to me. <laughs> But the man in the moment, ladies and gents, is Mr. Graham Rutherford. We're talking about kits. Graham, are you are you managing to contain yourself right now? I know we've only just started, but <laughs> we're in danger of a pleasure overload from the Rutherford household right now. This is the one I've been waiting for. I feel like I've waited a lifetime for this. Like Scotland waiting for an appearance at a major tournament. It has felt like 23 years that, that I've had to wait to talk about kits. So yes, I am very excited about this one. Ryan? Well, let's hope this isn't as brief and disappointing as Scotland in a major tournament. Oh. And we can actually... Uh, <laughs> it's already that. turning sour. <laughs> I apologise, Graham. We know, you know that we love you very much indeed. Um, so we're going to be talking about kits. Why don't we go back to the very start, gentlemen. Uh, the history. How kits first came about we saw some uh, old school uniforms taylor in the netflix factual documentary the english game of course was that the sort <laughs> of origin of the of the kit tell us more yeah i think it's around then it basically i think prior to the 1880s you have some people showing up with with kits with uniforms for the most part it's multicolored uh, whatever you have on is fine and we'll sort of remember it based on knowing our teammates then you started getting like certain colored sashes certain colored caps that's the way they could differentiate because those are cheaper and easier to keep together wealthier schools I think at that time could afford tailored jerseys and that became sort of the norm in the 1880s again purchased by individuals because it was a game for the aristocracy for the wealthy uh, then once professionalism is introduced we move towards clubs buying the kits, which means they suddenly stop being tailored and high quality because now the individual teams have to pay for them as opposed to the individuals themselves. Um, did they have climate cool technology in um, the <laughs> 1800s, Taylor? Oh, man. It's, it's really interesting reading about all that they did with the, like, the technology around shirts with the idea that like they were cotton until the 80s, basically. That it was like mm. lots of other different approaches to the colors, the fabrics, the sort of style of the kits, but for the most part, it's cotton until the until the 1980s or thereabouts. Uh, but along the way, there's lots of different little interesting things that I'm sure we'll talk about uh, as we go. But I'm a big I'm a, I'm a big like fan of the little moments. Basically, I really enjoy the history of of kits because you can see people coming together and like solving problems in a very obvious way. But I'm going to assume it required hours and hours of debate to get to the point where they were doing things like having a goalkeeper wear a different jersey which happened mm. in i believe eight or 1909 is when that became a rule because they couldn't tell who was handling the ball in the box which you kind of need to know if it's a handball or if it's the goalie and there were so many people who would like have the same hairstyle and somebody would just hop in and make a save and then hop back out and go play in the field 
they had to kind of differentiate. So then you have those types of rules. They have the rule about two teams have to wear, um, they have to register their colors and you can't have overlap because I think it was Sunderland uh, showed up to a game with Wolves or Wolves showed up to a game with Sunderland wearing red and white stripes. And that didn't really work since they were both wearing those. That's when Wolves changed their colors to black and gold, which has mm. stuck since then. But that's when you start getting into the idea that co- colors have to be registered. Then you have to have change kits. Then you have to have change socks as we go. Uh, and then you start getting sponsors and different technology. Polyester becomes a thing in the 80s. And away we go with the crazy colored uh, jerseys of the 80s and the 90s. It's fascinating about where the colours and the origin of certain mm-hmm. colours of teams came from as well. Like Leeds, um, 1975, they changed. They used to wear blue and gold. Mm-hmm. And then they changed because they liked uh, the iconic 1960s and late 1950s Real Madrid, who won lots of things. And they thought, <laughs> we want to win lots of things. We're going to wear white too. That was the logic entirely. And then the key point there is that you always have to connect it to a thing that didn't really connect before, but now you have to find a way to make it work. So then I think they tie that to the War of the Roses and the House Mm. of White. And so then it's suddenly like, yeah, we're hearkening back to a thing from centuries ago when in reality, yeah, Madrid looked cool and we liked it. It's also, and this is a thing, with... Uh, cleaning technology getting better is when you start having more white kits, white socks, white shorts, because prior to that, if you're living in industrial England, white is not going to stay white for very long, especially if you are not having a ton of servants to clean it for you. As you start getting better washers and dryers and soaps and whatnot, uh, you get teams wearing white more often. Very true. Yeah, and and there's also fascinating stories about how teams got their kits because they borrowed them from other teams. Oh, it's the best. Here it comes, Wimbledon. Well, used to play in blue hey. and white because there was a team down the street called Chelsea. Um, <laughs> Juventus got their first kits from Notts County, who are one of the uh, the OGs when it comes to soccer in general. Uh, Graham, we're, we've been talking on your turf for far too long. Have you got any contribs in terms of the history of kits or anything that's fascinated you from the old days? Well, I, I guess my interest really comes in when they start um, producing them for the mass market for fans and kind of marketing them to, to fans. So the, the first replica kit was... I was looking this up because I didn't actually know this off the top of my head, but the first replica kit was produced in 1959. It was produced by Umbro and was very much marketed at children and it came in a box. So I actually bought I actually bought a limited edition Japan shirt, which came in a box recently. So we've gone full circle. Um, they used to come in a box, which came with, came with a, a, a shirt and socks and the shorts. And it was a way for, for kids to, to dress as popular players of the time. So... The players that I was I was reading about uh, in this in this article were, were Dennis Law and a lot of the Manchester United players of that time, and then after that you had Admiral, who for for a long time really dominated the early stages of kits in the consumerist age, and they were the, they were the ones who really accelerated the uh, the replica market after that. Graham, I went to a friend's house the other night who had in his living room uh, a display case of bottles of whiskey because he collected whiskey, and I thought, okay, that's quite cute in many ways and then i thought does graham ruthven have a display case of um shirts with like his japanese box shirt under a spotlight in his in his living room i mean that is the dream uh <laughs> if i if i lived alone yes uh, that's what i would have but unfortunately i live with other people who are not weirdos so uh <laughs> no would I you don't have, have that i think as long as you have them like in a frame or some sort of display when it's just like thumbtacked to the wall that's where I think my <laughs> wife wouldn't be down for the thumbtack to the wall i think in the living room maybe if it were tastefully framed and well appointed 
well, most recently, I d- most recently I do have a, a wardrobe in my office that I have commandeered to to have <laughs> my best kits, the kits that I wear the most often. I've still got loads in my parents' house, which are lost. I will find them one day. But uh, yeah, the one the ones that I'm proudest of or wear the most often are actually in a in a designated closet right now. I love uh, that what? you've got a wardrobe in your office. You're sitting down to podcast. It's like, no, 2017 Marseille away won't yeah. do for this one. <laughs> yeah, just not the energy we're going for today. We need a little bit more restrained, refined. We're going for Tiki Taka Barcelona. That's what I need right now to kind of keep things steady and, and on the level. Ryan, uh, going back to the Knotts County Juve one for a moment, I didn't realize how many of these just genuinely are like, we need a shirt. Can you send us one? And that mm. appears to be what the Knotts County one, uh, they, I guess... They asked one of their English players, John Savage, if he'd be able to send uh, home for some new kits. He contacted his friend in Nottingham, who happened to be a county fan, and he sent him a bunch of uh, Notts County jerseys. Away we go. The other one from these football times uh, was when Bilbao based student Juan uh, Elordi, mm-hmm. I'm sure I butchered that, uh, Elordi. Either way, caught the ship home from Southampton in 1909. He picked up 50 football shirts to take back uh, with him for his local team. Athletic Club were in need of a new kit and took the red and white stripes of Southampton before sending the leftover jerseys to their youth team. Athletic. Athletic. They hadn't changed it yet. English. De Madrid in the Spanish yep. capital. Now 110 years later, Athletic Club and Atletico uh, complete at the highest level in their cherished Rojiblanco colors. Yeah, an athletic club did not change their name away from the English spelling when some nah. unpleasantness happened in Spain, which caused other things to happen in soccer. Athletic club are a curious case, actually, Taylor, um, because they are it's, it's a port town and they're, they're sort of apocryphal stories about them getting their colours from Sunderland as well and Southampton yep. and Sunderland fans sort of uh, bringing the team to the area. Um, I went to Bilbao when we're talking 2008. I actually made a documentary there and, and about how fiercely proud the local Basques are, the local people in Bilbao are. Uh, the shirt at that time, um, it was produced locally and it had a local sponsor, Petronor, which was like an oil and gas local refinery, basically. And they would reject any sponsor from outside the area. And they, um, it was only recently in 2008 that they actually had a sponsor on the shirt. And when you went in a club shop, you could buy the shirt with or without the sponsor, which begs the question, why would you buy it with a sponsor? But anyway, uh, and it's only relatively recently they've sort of given in and gone for the major corporate, corporate brands who've, um, who've uh, sponsored and um, uh, endorsed their kits. But we can get to that a little later on when we talk about the more modern side of things joe i realize we have not talked to you but yet about old school kits we we learned this week that uh you weren't aware of the thong song how um how, <laughs> how far back does your kit your kit history interest go well it goes back a lot farther after having researched for this episode i taylor earlier you said something about how you know all these changes seem so obvious to us but it probably would have taken yeah. hours and many brains i love that idea because one of the yep. things that i'd found is that there were no numbers on jerseys mm-hmm. until mm. the 1920s and the 1930s. Like the, the first FA Cup final with numbers was 1933 with Man City and Everton. And there's a lot of soccer. 1933 sounds like a long time ago, and it is. But there was a lot of soccer before 1933. The fact that there weren't numbers and people weren't saying, you know what? It'd be really helpful if we had ways to to designate which players which, and, and it, it just is, is more organized when you have numbers. But that just hadn't existed because not too long in the grand scheme of things before that, they had just come up with the whole idea of uniforms at all. And like Taylor mm-hmm. said, we were just showing up in whatever we had at that point. So uniforms was this big thing. Now we can tell who's on whose team without too much difficulty. And then numbers being the next evolution of that, I, I don't know. I just think it's so... It's funny in a way to think back on that, but also, man, what a what a great idea, folks. 1920s yeah. and 30s, great work, folks. 
and, and even I, and even from that, like with the sort of decision by committee, the idea that when you did have to register your colors, you it was I think whoever had been in the league the longest got to keep their their colors if there were a conflict. And so I like again maybe apocryphal, but there was the IX story, which I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes with that one. But when they were first promoted to the the top division, there they were wearing red and white stripes that clashed with uh, or that conflicted with Sparta Rotterdam, who had the same colors. So basically, IX were like, well, what if we just have one big red stripe down the middle? Would that be okay instead of a bunch of red and white stripes? And the league was just like, yeah, that's so, that's different enough. That works. And it was this sort of like weird compromise again in like 1911 or something like that that is still around today. So I just like how those little little things uh, echo through history, basically. Mm. And talking about uh, numbers on shirts as well, that is fascinating. I am, uh, to my disgrace, old enough to remember when the Premier League started. And that was when squad numbers came to the European game, basically, as well, uh, because it was just 1 to 11 before that and before names and squad numbers, uh, assigned squad numbers for the season, were on back of, on the back of shirts, certainly in England. And it was to my surprise, researching for this podcast, I found out where the inspiration for that came from. NASL, which huh. was, it was a thing back then. Who knew, huh? Interesting. Yeah. So backs on, like numbers on the backs of shirts came from NASL? They had squad numbers for the season, uh, oh, which I presume I has come from the American way of doing things in other American sports. And that was um, one of the sort of motivators for getting it uh, done in Europe many years later, admittedly. I yeah. don't know if NASL allowed for substitutions, but I wonder if that was part of it. Because I know that it used to be your squad was your squad. Sir Alex Ferguson talks about that a lot in his biography, his first biography, about being left, left out of the starting 11, and that meant he wasn't playing that day. And that always sticks out to me, that like you had 11 players, that was it. 1 through 11, those are the only numbers you need. I wonder if NASL like allowed for substitutions earlier or something like that, and that's where they needed more numbers than just the 11. And I think the rule with squad numbers in the NSL season, if I'm correct, Taylor, is that you kept your squad number for either the entirety of the season or until your team went bust, whichever came quicker. <laughs> <laughs> so a full season or two weeks thereabouts? Right. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. give or take. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, gents, this is a fascinating conversation so far. We're going to take a very quick break, but when we come back, well, let's talk a bit more about kit sponsorships and maybe get some numbers involved in this. We're going to come more into modern times. And also, I want to hear some notable kit stories some law graham I'm, I'm pointing in your direct direction for that we'll uh, we'll be back very shortly on soccer 101 Hey guys, Ryan here with a quick word about today's sponsor, ExpressVPN. We've been talking about kits today and the best way to kit out your computer and your tablet devices is by getting yourself ExpressVPN. You know what's not fair? The fact that Netflix hides thousands of shows and movies from you based on your location. Then it has the nerve to increase their prices on you. I know, right? In this economy, basically what a VPN does for you is that it hides your location and it can make you trick your computer or your tablet device into thinking you're in another location. Case in point, I'm in the UK right now. Switch on my ExpressVPN. My computer and my tablet device thinks it's in America again. I can watch my Hulu. I can watch my HBO Max. And I am laughing watching my Netflix too. And it's great on Netflix, by the way, because some countries have different catalogs on Netflix to what they have in the States. There's lots more stuff and lots less stuff. And the UK, for example, different stuff, I should say. Uh, When you use ExpressVPN, you can control which country you are present in. It has over 90 countries to choose from so every time i run out of stuff to watch i just switch myself to another country unlock 
some new shows. You can use it for iPlayer, as I say, Netflix, HBO Max, all of the stuff, all the good stuff that you like to watch. ExpressVPN can help you out with that. And what's more, it's super fast. It works on your phone, your laptop, even your smart TV, your Apple TV as well, if you've got one of those. That's what I use on mine. So you can watch your shows on the big screen with zero buffering. Guys, I've used a lot of VPN services in my time, and I can wholeheartedly say ExpressVPN is the best one, and I want you to try it too. So be smart, stop paying full price for streaming services and only getting a fraction of their content. Get your money's worth at expressvpn.com slash soccer. And if you go to that link, that's expressvpn.com slash soccer, you'll get three extra months free. E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash soccer for three months free. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for sponsoring today's show. Back to the kits. Soccer 101, we have returned. We are talking kits. Taylor Rockwell, Mm -hmm. I want to get into the sponsorship side of things because we know shirts um, very well have sponsors on them on their front, on their sleeves these days, and just about anywhere else, even in shorts and in some leagues, absolutely everywhere on the kit as well. So when did they start appearing on shirts? Who were the first sort of apparel makers as well to, mm-hmm. to get their to get their names on shirts as well? Because looking at some research here, it's it's credited many credit Liverpool with being the first top flight club to wear a sponsor on their shirt in 1979. Hitachi was on their shirt, but there were Taylor <laughs> examples before that. There were, including, and this is like I find this hilarious. I apologize in advance to Everton fans, but Liverpool were the first ones to sign that when it was uh, permitted. More on that in just a moment. (laughs) But they signed the deal, but Everton, uh, here's the quote, Everton became the first club to actually wear a shirt sponsor in the football league, which was Danish tinned meat company Hafnia, uh, due to their first match of the season taking place a few days before Liverpool's. Something about Everton being sponsored by a tinned meat company while (laughs) Liverpool got Hitachi sort of explains the, uh, the difference in those two clubs over the years. But that was when the FA allowed for it. Kettering Town, I think, were the first English club to try to wear a sponsor. They wore Kettering Tires in 1976 and were basically immediately ordered by the FA to remove the sponsor. The FA kind of constantly checks teams when they try to uh, adapt or evolve, and then a year or so later is like, never mind, that was a good idea, it was our idea now. But the one that I saw before to that one, and I think there were probably varied instances throughout history, but the first one I saw that was like just straight up a sponsor was Eintracht uh, Braunschweig in 1973. German club Eintracht Braunschweig. Uh, can you guess which alcohol sponsored them? Was it Jaeger? It was Jaeger. <laughs> Jaegermeister <laughs> on the front of the jersey in 1973. But then, yes, Ryan, to your point, Liverpool in 1979 becoming the first uh, sponsorship deal or signing the first sponsorship deal with Hitachi. And then it sort of uh, becomes very widespread very quickly from there. It's fascinating the history of sponsors as well. I remember there's been some that were rejected. West Ham, I remember in the late 90s, wanted a condom sponsor on their shirt and they were denied it by the league, I seem to remember, because who'd want that kind of safety message being put on, on shot soccer shirts? I don't know about that. And, <laughs> and, now, and interesting... now Pornhub is on a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> is it really? I think, I think it was like a, that was like a one-off thing that was mostly for marketing. But yeah, I feel like that happened a couple years ago. Goodness me, Taylor Rockwell. Goodness me. <laughs> uh, that, one of the, the, mo- the mo- biggest travesties I can remember from modern sponsors, by the way. Do you remember Huddersfield? It might have been a couple of years ago when they had a sash with Paddy Power written entirely oh, on it. Yeah. It turned out just to be sort of a marketing stunt because they couldn't have actually gotten away with that kind of thing. But yikes, uh, maybe we shouldn't have actually 
mention the name of that bookmaker, but hey, we've done that now. And <laughs> the other thing I was going to mention is that the teams who held out without a sponsor at all, and Athletic Club were one of them, as we mentioned. Barcelona were a big one as well. And, and was it Madrid who didn't have one for a long time as well? I'm pretty sure. Uh, but Barcelona were sort of steadfast in their approach. We will never have a shirt sponsor. And then they kind of bent it a little bit in the, was it the 2000s when they had UNICEF on there? Yeah. And now they've just straight up gone Qatar Airways, baby. <laughs> they went yeah. Qatar Foundation for a season or two, right? Because they were still operating under the idea that like it's a non-profit it's fine and then they went Qatar Airways after yeah, that yeah. They, they basically thought to themselves how can we go from being Mexican club yep. to full on capitalism in <laughs> five seasons yeah and it was a gradual process it's yeah it, and it does make you think Messi's kind of being paid by the same people now as he was back then oh, yeah. for thought there um, Joe I come to you you got some numbers for me I do yeah Kits now are a big moneymaker for a couple of different parties. Uh, the, the biggest one is likely the suppliers, the people making them. They end up getting uh, the lion's share of the commission from those deals, 80, 85, 90, 95% oftentimes. But clubs also get a significant amount of cash from selling the, the main sponsor on the front of the shirt. We talked about some other sleeve sponsors, all that stuff. Those are all different sources of income. But I went into the numbers, and there's a really big and also logical disparity between different clubs making different amounts on their shirt sponsors. So I looked at the Premier League numbers from uh, a couple years back. And Manchester United made $80 million, uh, from Chevrolet, who's their main kit sponsor. They also uh, had 91.9 million. This is all in dollars. From Adidas, who was their kit supplier, $27.5 million from their sleeve sponsor. And all in all, they made almost $200 million from the shirt that year. The other teams in the Premier League all made a little bit less in terms of the front uh, shirt sponsor in 2019-2020. City made about £45 million from the Etihad shirt sponsor. Arsenal had £40 million coming in from Fly Emirates. Tottenham made about £35 million from AIA. And the lowest, all the way down at the bottom of the league that season, was Brighton, who made about £1.5 million from American Express. The disparity from the Bundesliga, which is another league I was able to find, is is pretty similar. Wolfsburg, surprisingly enough, was top of that list with 70 million euros coming in from Volkswagen. Bayern had about 40 million. I wonder why that million. would be, Joe, in the yeah, account right. which That's Volkswagen true. was true. made in. But Bayern's not top <laughs> is the is the point here. Bayern makes I'm just used to Bayern being top in everything. Yes. Yeah. Bayern uh, had about 45 million coming in from Telecom and the lowest, the joint lowest, uh, one of the two at the bottom was Union Berlin with 2.5 million euros coming in from around town. The the one other interesting nugget that I think I found here is that Serie A's numbers tend to be much, much, much lower, which makes sense given a lot of the financial struggles and restraints and constraints that we're seeing play out with Serie A and players having to be moved on because the clubs are just in financial challenges. They don't have nearly as much money coming in from shirt sponsors. Like some of the top are 10 million euros or lower. So there's a pretty big disparity from club to club within a league, but also from league to league, even within the elite stratosphere in in Europe's top kind of big five leagues. Yeah, it's fascinating looking at these numbers. And I did some similar research, Joe, and, and I came up with some similar numbers like Man United making around $200 million per year from shirt sponsorships in total. That's collar on their sleeve. That's uh, Team Viewer 
with who signed a five-year deal with them for $325 million uh, recently. That was, um, well, I believe that's the biggest shirt sponsorship deal. But it appears that they actually make more from Adidas uh, than they do from their yeah. main uh, club sponsor, which yeah. surprised me. $1.3 billion over 10 years was the deal they signed in 2014. Mm-hmm. And it looks like it's a similar story. I looked at Chelsea as well. $1.2 billion uh, was the deal they struck in 2016. And um, part of that was because they actually cancelled out their deal with Adidas six years early to switch over to Nike. So they had to kind of pay a penalty with that as well. And that's worth, um, you know, that's that's going to be around $80 million per season for 15 years. And the shirt sponsors is interesting. Collar play $27 million per season, as far as I can see. Three mobile, no, it's Hyundai on the shirt, on the sleeve of Chelsea. $17 million per season to try and sell you some nice uh, South Korean cars there. So there's, there's some real fascinating numbers there. Graham? Yeah, and, and this is the when we're talk, pivoting to talk about the, the apparel makers, the, the, the kit manufacturer, that is uh, something that has really intensified recently. You were talking through some of the clubs there, Ryan, in the Premier League. And if you look at the Premier League in recent years, Man City went from Umbro to Nike to Puma, while Spurs went from Puma to Under Armour to Nike. Chelsea went from Adidas to Nike, while Man United went from Nike to Adidas. Arsenal went from Nike to Puma to Adidas. Well, Liverpool went from Adidas to Warrior, remember that? Uh, mm. To New Balance to Nike. So it's all very intense right now, and it feels like that is where a lot of the, the action is. And, and you mentioned there, Ryan, that a lot of these clubs are making more money from their apparel deal, from their kit manufacturing deal, than they are from the, the actual sponsors right now. And they're starting to get quite creative. Um, Liverpool, for instance, I was, I was researching this because I couldn't quite remember the numbers. I just remember their deal is slightly different with Nike. They receive $39.5 million a season from Nike, but that is significantly lower than the guaranteed fee that some of their rivals get. So Manchester United receive um, £75 million a season from Adidas. There are some caveats in that in terms of whether in the Champions League and whether they, they win Premier League titles and so on. But Liverpool received 20% of the sales, which is significantly more than is, than is customary yeah. in, in, in football. And that could take them as high as, they, they estimate, as high as $100 million a season, which puts them at the sort of Manchester United level. So I, I think this is, a, this is an area, I feel like sponsorship has reached saturation almost. We saw Manchester United there going from Chevrolet to TeamViewer with a deal that is almost exactly the same amount of money. But the uh, the kit manufacturer stuff is still evolving, and clubs are looking at different ways to do that. Yeah, and that's actually you, you've kind of hit the he- hit the nail on the head there, Graham. So why well, I, when I was thinking, why does the main shirt sponsor pay less than the the apparel sponsor whose logo is much smaller on the shirt? It's basically because the apparel sponsor gets a much more tangible return. You mentioned the twenty percent figure there for Liverpool; they make about twenty percent on shirt sales. Uh, Colin Miller on on Twitter just has said this just recently: the customary number is around ten to fifteen percent. So this myth, this idea that say Leo Messi is going to pay yeah. back his salary in shirt sales that ain't really gonna happen clubs don't yeah. generally make their money back on shirt sales when they when they sign a big player and there was sort of word that Real Madrid did that with Cristiano Ronaldo as well uh, the stat that Colin Miller says is that Barcelona received around 30 million euros annually from Messi shirt sales from an overall 200 million so they're, they're not getting a big chunk of change. It is the apparel makers who are making an investment, getting the name on the shirt, but also getting an actual tangible return for it as well. It's quite fascinating. Yeah, and I, I saw a tweet from, uh, I'm reluctant to reference him, but Piers Morgan, who reflected a common myth that you, you talked about there, Ryan, that Messi's shirt sales would, would pay for PSG's 
signing of him. That would be true if PSG's fan base quadruples and every fan buys ten shirts every season for the next two years. Maybe maybe they would maybe they would cover it that way. But yeah, that's maybe not realistic. Well, Graham, you're buying all their shirts. To be fair, Graham, hear (laughs) me out. Hear me out, guys. We pool all of our resources. We start our own apparel company, TSS Apparel. We make mm-hmm. bank, and we just phone it in from that day. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Taylor? I mean, I think that's kind of what some of these companies have done when you look at how common the jerseys are at yeah. international level. There's yeah. definitely an element of, like, here's your template. Pick your colors. We're giving you the same thing, everybody. That's how it's going to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I feel like I feel like that's a good, good way to, uh, what is it, like, buy in, uh, cash out, sell out, something like that. Yeah, we're fine. We can and do that. That's an interesting facet of MLS as well, Taylor, when you mentioned a template. You, it can't escape your attention that there is generally a template process which Adidas uh, puts yeah. in for MLS teams. Um, I'm not sure how much I can go into this, but there, there, I have a bit of insight on how MLS does things. But essentially, when a club wants to create a jersey, they send sort of mood boards and inspirations to adidas who kind of take it from there so it's there's very much a collaboration between club and adidas in making the shirts and they are i'll I'll just say the designs are locked in earlier than you may think and um i i guess i'll leave it there but there Mm. there is a fascinating story and an athletic long read i think on the adidas process that surely has to be made at some point graham uh, yeah, I've, I've I've written stuff about the Adidas MLS deal before. For anyone who who doesn't know, listening, and I imagine a, a lot of people do, but MLS is different in that it has a uniform deal with with Adidas that covers the whole league. So, and what is what is normal in other leagues, I actually can't think of another league off the top of my head that has anything like this. But mm. it's up to the clubs to negotiate their own apparel deals. With MLS, with its centralized structure, it is Adidas that does the whole the whole league, and that leads to a lot of complaints over common design shall we say we had the the white shirt debacle of, of of a couple seasons ago where basically every away shirt in the league was was very similar shall we say however what what <laughs> i would say from a from a european point of view um i think maybe mls and mls fans shouldn't underestimate how much visibility having that adidas deal gets the league i have no doubt that in europe and i'm not saying it's all about europe i'd imagine it's probably the same in the us as well but having that that clout of adidas and their reach we see much more of mls gear through that deal than if that deal wasn't in place and i think at this point in mls is um going slightly off on a tangent here at this point mls is growth and development with new teams and clubs coming online that clout is probably quite important for them from a, a marketing point of view so there, there are pros and cons to that deal Graham, can you explain that a little bit more? Because like, what, why would, like, why would Adidas having control of all of those kits mean yep. they're more common in Europe? So it, it largely comes down to distribution. So one of the big reasons that Liverpool um, ditched New Balance for Nike, and one of the reasons that they they actually argued this in court, because that that deal went to court. Um, New Balance felt that they they were entitled to enough to continue with liverpool is that the that nike's uh, distribution was just so much better than the new balances so i guess clubs that you know your big franchises so i'm thinking you know atlanta united your lafcs your nycfcs you know they, they would possibly be able to to um, attract the big apparel makers who do have those distribution networks but a lot of maybe the smaller franchises wouldn't be able to do that and so that may impact the 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 marketability of the league as a whole and i think that's quite important to mls at the moment all right that makes sense i wish i wish they had certain exemptions and maybe they just maybe clubs don't want to have to worry about that or think about that but uh when i was doing the research for 
the sort of like the different manufacturers. We do like Umbro is the the big one to start. Umbro and Bukta. Uh, I don't know Bukta at all. Then it's Admiral, as as Graham said. Admiral and Umbro then both start doing some work with Adidas. Puma gets in there at some point. But Nike, in 1978, their first team that they were sponsoring was the Portland Timbers. They're a Portland company. So I kind of like would love if Portland could still have that Nike connection. Yeah. And if you have that sort of history in your city, that maybe you could reflect it that way. But I think overall, you're right. It does probably then help them get a few more kits out than otherwise would be sent around the world. Talking about getting a few more kits out on the streets, would you like some depressing facts about the markups on shirts, gents? Oh, oh yeah. no, I, I looked I look through this already. And yeah. <laughs> I'm already depressed, but go for it, right? <laughs> so I found some research from around 2016, which posited the fact that most modern soccer jerseys have around a 1,000% markup. So these shirts, these official shirts, cost around $6.64 at today's um, translation, uh, around $7 to produce. Uh, they made predominantly in the Far East by workers who earn around $1 per hour. That's a shirt that's going for $80 upwards, around $7 to produce. How do you feel about your wardrobe now, Graham? Uh, less positive. Uh, I also <laughs> I also feel like with... Um, you know some of the, the some some of the money that you know Barcelona getting 135 million pounds per se- per season from Nike and some of the mark that that markup uh, figures, these these clubs maybe aren't the most prudent financially. <laughs> it feels like maybe they should be able to make better financial decisions given how much every everyone's making out of this whole deal and how much they're making out of me personally. <laughs> Certainly out of you, Graham. Uh, yeah, and prudent financial decisions would be a wonderful thing that Barcelona could be blessed with right now. I imagine. Um, Jen, should we should we talk about some some of our most notable kit stories, some soccer lore? I think the one kit story that always amuses me, uh, Taylor, is the Man United invisible kits of the mid nineties. Oh, yeah. This was, I think, it was a second. I don't. It was a second kit because I think the third kit was the blue and white stripes. If I'm not, if I'm, um... I think it might have been the third kit. Uh, okay. But so... Either way, it was not their home kit, which would have That's been a right. travesty if they were grey at home. <laughs> so this uh, was... but yeah, ninety five, ninety six. It's the one that Fergie made them change at halftime because supposedly it made it impossible for them to distinguish between players and the background crowd uh and yeah they have not gone that type of gray since then they did have that kind of grayish pink one a couple seasons ago or maybe even Mm. last season i forget uh that was not my favorite but yeah that one was pretty disastrous on the whole so that one fascinated me because it was really popular in the school playground that season like everyone wanted that kit because it was a little bit different no one had seen a gray kit before and then it got cursed because they wore it at southampton and and they had to change it at halftime for blue and white stripes which yeah that that was probably the third kit uh thinking about it it's amazing that they packed both kits on the bus just in case just in case we can't see each other let's change it half time but it it was it did have the sharp sponsorship right yep there was a sharp view cam and it was an umbro kit um and they wore it three times and they never won in it i never knew they wore it three times as well and that was the the final straw that game for fergie evidently but one other fact that um was the same season i believe chelsea had an away kit which was almost identical in gray but it had orange on the on the shoulders i don't know if any remember it It was the one when rude hullet was on the front of it cause that's yeah. correct yeah and it was yeah when Rudhull and Viali were there they, that's the kit they would have worn I remember being at a game at Sohurst Park when they were wearing that and it I actually kind of liked it maybe maybe the orange made it a bit more visible because uh Rudhull it certainly was not invisible that day if memory serves correct uh Graham any, any soccer law you wanted to bring to the table oh I've got so much right <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd never ask um <laughs> so I'm gonna pick out Cameroon who have a history yes. of some controversial kits <laughs> 
So in, in 2002, Puma produced a sleeveless kit for them, very much like a basketball jersey. Um, they wore them. They wore them until they were basically forced to to wear black sleeves with them to get around the rules. And basically, from my research, the reason that these 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 kits, these sleeveless kits, weren't allowed, were because tournament patches couldn't be attached to the arms of them. Obviously, because they didn't have any arms or any sleeves. And at that point, you would think that Puma might step off a little bit, play it a little bit more safe with their Cameroon national team kits. But no, in 2004, Puma yeah. produced a one-piece kit, a onesie, if you will, uh, which was worn at the 2004 Africa Cup of Nations, despite warnings, and they received a $154,000 fine, and they were actually docked six points from their 2006 World Cup qualifying group. So, yeah, Cameroon is the, Cameroon are the ones that, 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 that uh, spring to mind uh, for me, and, and I've got so many more examples, but I won't Graham, hog them. So I've got to ask I'll about Cameroon it. and the onesie. That's fascinating. How how did it get put on? Were there buttons down the back? Did it have a butt flap? <laughs> did it have a butt flap? Yep. I actually don't know, and I don't think there's footage of players getting that kit on either. I think that was... Uh, <laughs> That was kept private. That footage. I can't imagine it was very easy. I think. I think there must have been. I think the shorts may have been connected at the front, but maybe not at the back somewhere. I. I actually don't know. It's a very yeah. good question. Business in the front, party in the back. That's what I like to hear, Graham. Uh, uh, Joe, any any soccer law in terms of kits you wanted to bring to the table? It's hard for me to beat that onesie <laughs> kit, but. I will say the, the U.S. 1994 World Cup faux denim kit is yeah. iconic in its own special way. It is genuinely, I think, one of my favorite kits just because it is so absurd. And, and essentially, as far as I understand it, Adidas just said, you know what, we're trying to, we're trying to make a statement here. And so they decided to make it as unashamedly, awfully American as they could uh, to the point where apparently Alexi Lawas thought they were being pranked when they were given mm-hmm. the kits and he was looking around in the locker room for a camera. Uh, candid camera style, I would assume. And just the players hated them initially, and it, they're ugly. They are ugly. But Adidas really went for it. In, in a way, I guess if in design you're making a statement uh, and people are paying attention, then you haven't completely failed at your job. Those kits are so bad that they're good. Yeah, yep, I like my yep. opinion of them. Yeah, yeah. Taylor, what are you thinking? Soccer law in kits. I mean, how dare you all? That kid is just out and out terrific. And I like it. I will hear no slander against it. Mm. Uh, I'm also really happy to learn that Cameroon were the ones that we should credit with uh, bringing the romper back into fashion. Yes. So we'll for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think the ones that stand out in a negative way are the ones where the colors don't match anything that has gone on historically, traditionally, and it's not for historical reasons. So, like, when Man United did the yellow and uh, green and gold in the mid-90s, like, that connects to when they were Newton Heath, and that is yeah. the original color. So, like, I don't have a beef with that, but I think it was the 2019 Women's World Cup where the U.S. women wore green socks or, like, those, like, lime yellowish green socks that had no business being there, but it was just, like, the color scheme Nike decided they needed to wear. I really don't love when that type of thing happens. And that extends to Liverpool, who... I'm, I would assume have some connection to purple, but they, their third kit in 2013-2014, the one that was black, white, and purple and had different shapes and cutouts and texture. That was, it was a just warrior a, one. It, it was bad. It yeah. was bad. And that's not just my Man United fandom speaking. It's, it's not a pretty kit. <laughs> I was thinking about some of the controversies as well that uh, kits and kit sponsors have brought around. Uh, Johan Cruyff was quite a famous one in 1974 oh, at the World Cup. Uh, the Dutch shirts were sponsored by Adidas. They had three stripes down the uh, down the sleeves. 
Oh, you're uh, almost called him Yordi. Johan did not want to uh, not want to wear those. He was sponsored by Puma, so he had his own unique shirts made where there was two stripes on them, not three, uh, which resulted in him getting his own way. But also just loads of publicity for Adidas because everybody knows that story basically. <laughs> and the other controversy I think is uh, Ronaldo at the World Cup in '98. Uh, I don't know how the TSS truck of lawyers is going to feel about this, but there were allegations. Just say allegedly, a bunch you're fine. There was allegedly, allegedly allegations that Nike he had some influence over whether he played specifically in that final and i'll leave it there i'll let you leave it there <laughs> there's always loads of stuff about more and and, yeah. and recently as well about how much influence kit manufacturers have so at the moment it seems to be very much a trend that that these companies will get involved with transfers and it never really seems to happen. So, you know, for a number of years, it was Nike were going to play a role or even stump up some of the cash for Ronaldo to go back to Manchester United, given that he's a a Nike athlete and was playing for Adidas Real Madrid at that time. Uh, The closest we've come to it is uh, Adidas having a... As far as I'm aware, there was no money exchange, but Adidas very much played a role in in promoting Paul Pogba's return to Manchester United. Um, with mm-hmm. a, he was obviously an Adidas 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 athlete at that time, and they did a, a bunch of um, promotional videos with Stormzy. Did anyone remember that when Adidas? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, the, the, the apparel makers have never been more powerful than they are now, but it still feels like they're not influencing the sport that much. Perhaps with the exception, allegedly. Of the 1998 World Cup. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Thank you very much, Graham. Um, Graham, they what? said I did a tune with Nick Jonas. They said I sold out. That's bogus. Thank you, Stormzy, <laughs> for that one. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. That 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 Pogba announcement video, I, I will still watch that. And it's be good. kind of sad because it didn't really live up to the hype. At least it still hasn't yet. But that video is real, real good. And it's hilarious. I'm off on a tangent now because Pogba is wearing not Adidas stuff at all and not Man United stuff. He's wearing like a big puffy coat like clearly whatever he was wearing when he walked into the photo shoot is what he's wearing in that video but then Stormzy is wearing Man United training stuff and so I remember showing that to my wife when she didn't know who Paul Pogba was and she was very confused as to who was the rapper and who was the footballer because Pogba looks like the rapper and Stormzy looks like the footballer especially because Stormzy as I remember it has Pogba on his back I think he does He has Pogba's name on his back, so that's very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear, oh dear. Gents, this has been a fascinating chat about kits. Before we head off, though, I'd like to go around the horn and sort of maybe if we each offer our favourite kit of all Mm. time. But before we do that, I have a question for you as well, because I've got some friends who say that, and and you mentioned, Graham, I think it was you mentioned this, Graham, that um, the original kits were designed for children in mind. And Mm. I've got some friends who who are adults, grown-up people, who say that, kits are only for children they wouldn't wear a replica jersey if they were at a game and they're like they i get yep. i get mocked by them for wearing mine with a reckless abandon as i do um how, how does everyone else feel about that because i feel like that's a bit joyless and obviously graham you being a kit connoisseur surely you feel that it's okay for big grown-ups to wear shirts uh yes generally <laughs> in, in certain settings i maybe i wouldn't maybe go to like a pub or like out for a meal <laughs> But like, like a, bat- uh, a baptism for sure. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you can. It depends on the class of shirt. You know, a 2004 Atalanta away shirt. Uh, that's absolutely fine for 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 events. But I, I totally get. I mean, I actually don't. I wear them around the house and I wear them to play fives. And sometimes I will wear them to go to the shop. Oh. But I won't. I won't really wear them to go out much. To be Gra- honest, Graham, are you that hipster who turns up to five aside in the Ukraine 2006 away? Yes, absolutely, that is me. 
Uh, you could always go, uh, I think until 1955, England wore a white button-down shirt with long sleeves, which is basically just a, like a, an actual collared shirt. So you could just wear that and say you were wearing the England kit. That would work. Joe, yeah, except that would involve me wearing an England ah, shirt. Right. Good call, good call, good call, good <laughs> yeah, call. don't do that, Graham. Um, Joe, how did, how did they do in Arizona? And what's your thought on that question? Because I found that um, I wore, uh, I wear soccer jerseys even more in the US because I feel like it's a, it's a, it's a way of saying to people, I'm a soccer fan, and there's more of a, more of a, a club to be a part of, if that makes sense. Yeah, it kind of it kind of distinguishes you a little bit, and it is kind of a cool thing. I definitely see people wearing them. I. I really don't wear soccer jerseys around many places. I don't have very many either. I'll it's send just, you some, Joe. Grandma, sure, I'll take I'll take free stuff. Um, <laughs> it's one, for me. One is they're just so expensive. We talked about that already. Um, but two, I always feel like they're kind of baggy, and maybe this just means I don't know how to properly dress myself. But it, it's almost more just that I feel like I can't pull them off or that they don't fit right. It's not necessarily because I feel like it's it's a bad thing to do to wear them around. You need you one know? of those Arsenal skin tight ones, Joe. That's what you need. <laughs> oh, we don't need that. Right? Don't <laughs> am I am I alone in saying that like they're not? Uh, this is gonna sound strange, but like they're not that comfortable. Like s- soccer shirts, on the whole, like because yeah. they're designed to like wick oh. away moisture and keep you cool. I feel like if like when you're wearing them to do an activity, if you're going for a run, if you're playing soccer, if you're doing yard work, like I think they're really good. If you're gonna be like in a hot environment, maybe. But if I'm just sitting here recording, I feel like they tend to get like clingy and kind of uncomfortable. Maybe that's just me, but no, I don't like no. wearing them. For that reason, that's Taylor. I didn't even think about that, and we're in the middle of summer here right now in Arizona. I, they're just miserable to wear outside and even inside because it's still just so darn hot. You're covered in sweat, and unless you're going out with that intention to sweat yeah. and to work out or to play, they're they're not the move to wear. I didn't even thought about that, and I should have because I'm sweating right now. Fun fact, everybody. <laughs> well, I always think it's it's if, if there's if there's more kind of plastic patches on it, it can yeah. get more uncomfortable. So you know, anything from Mexico is uh, is pretty uncomfortable just because you'll be sweating in one area. What's that? Oh, right, it's a Home Depot logo that I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> on a on a peculiar part of my uh, of my shirt. If anyone thinks I'm being uh, bizarrely disparaging towards Me- Mexico, it's just their their teams tend to no, um, sell not. a lot a lot of those shirts. <laughs> they, they sell a, a lot of the the space, the sponsorship, a lot of real on estate shirts. on those shirts, Graham. Yeah, quite exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, Graham, I, do you know why why uh, Jesus Corona is called Tecatito? Yes, I love that, this. That's like one of my favorites, and it relates I to what you're not. talking about. Uh, his name is Jesus Corona, but he played for a team uh, in Mexico where they would put the the, sp- the sponsor at the top of the kit, and they were sponsored by Tecate. So hey, okay. Corona was underneath Tecate, and so he became little little Tecate, Tecatito, uh, as a result. <laughs> Got That's it. Excellent. That's funny. Uh, one more note on the being hot wearing uh, sweat-wicking jerseys. Um, when, I, when I were a lad, I had a friend who wore a Dallas Burn jersey. And I don't know if you remember those jerseys, but like those late 90s MLS jersey they were heavy it had like these really it was like a hockey jersey and it had it was almost stiff like the 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 logos were so big (laughs) on it and I was thinking it's 110 in the shade in Dallas how are they wearing these things goodness me Oh, that's terrible. That is I terrible. Still, I still love 80s and 90s, man. Like, it's just, it, it really is this weird time period in, in, in kit design when everybody just collectively was like, we can do whatever we want. Well, then we will do whatever we want. And those early MLS jerseys, DC United, it, it's one of my favorites, the original DC United one. That doesn't really apply because that's just, like, black and red and white. But, like, the Tampa Bay Mutiny jersey from 96 is insanity. When you add in Carlos Valderrama's blonde fro to the equation, it's even better. I love how much 
innovation and weird choices there were in the 80s and 90s, even if some of those kits, especially from the 80s that are polyester, look like they must have just been like a plastic coffin to play in. I cannot imagine (laughs) how not breathable those things were. Very much so. All right, on that note, gents, let's go around the horn and uh, and nominate our favorite kit of all time. I'll give you a second to think about it, and I'll go first. I thought long and hard about this, and the one that I really, really like is one I never owned. And I think um, a lot of our relationship with uh, jerseys that we like is our relationship with the team that wears them. And it's the England Euro 96 home jersey. I, I just absolutely loved it. It had the sort of light blue trim on it, which you never saw in an England jersey before that. The badge, the crest, sorry, was centred on the jersey, which I'd never really seen. Or I don't think it had happened with an England jersey before. It looked so modern and cool at the time in 1996. And I, I think I might have to go and find a retro one somewhere because I always remember that being great. And obviously it was a great uh, fond time for England as well. Taylor, your favourite jersey? Uh, I mentioned it earlier. I really enjoy uh, the original DC United home shirt. I think it's really simple, but really, I, it just stands out because it reminds me of like as a youngster. I think I was twelve when that league started, and just being like, "That's what a soccer jersey is supposed to look mm-hmm. like," and it looks so different than so many other uh, American sports jerseys. I really enjoy the current uh, Man United away shirt, which I talked about on the on Total Soccer Show this week. I think yeah. it harkens back to other blue jerseys of the past, but I, I'm a big fan of that one. And the one I have on my wall behind me is the 2012-2013 home Galatasaray jersey, which has the the sort of different like quarter panels that, that they sometimes do, where it looks like it's two jerseys stitched together. But it's one of the few occasions when that actually looks good, and the, the, the collar is nice, but not too much. Um, And then basically anything from the NASL, including the Colorado one that has fringe and tassels on it. I mean, come on. How do you not wear a tassel (laughs) jersey? It's awesome. But the the Tampa Bay Rowdies jersey uh, from the NASL era is also, I think, probably my favorite. Like, uh, the one I saw uh, when I was going through was the Soccer Bowl 79 one that has, like, the green and white, or sorry, green and yellow sleeves. It just looks great. It's Adidas. It has the old Adidas sort of flowery logo. I'm sure that's not a flower, but that's what I call it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I like the old school throwback NASL kits, but uh, Man United and DC United reign supreme for me. I, I, I would wear a tassel shirt to the club, to the club. <laughs> I just want to see you in the club, frankly, Graham. <laughs> um, with a tassel shirt <laughs> oh especially so the, the colorado caribous that was in 1978 with the tasseled shirt you should look it up listener if you haven't seen it uh i i understand they played one season and they lost 22 of their 30 games so tassels don't pay kids that's the uh that's the rule here joe your favorite you have to earn the tassels you get a tassel for every win <laughs> earn your stripes earn your tassels that's right yeah. taylor that's right joe your favorite shirt Taylor, I'm literally on my phone right now. I'm looking at an an 80s NASL Tampa Bay Rowdies kit, and you just described, I think, the exact one I'm looking at, which is fine. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll I'll pick a different one. That's not a problem at all. I'm a sucker for collared shirts. I I just think they look cool, and it's also really weird to me that some soccer jerseys have been made with collars because they're not a dress shirt you're going out there to play. But I'm also a sucker for the 2005. I have no affiliation with this team and really no, I'm not tied to them in any way. So Ryan, your your talk about your affiliation with England doesn't apply here. But the 2005 Arsenal, it's kind of maroon and gold with the collared uh, shirt. There's a there's a good picture of Dierry Henry wearing it. It just it looks sick, and I think that's how I pick which oh. which jersey I like. They either look ridiculous or they look cool, and most often the ones I like have a collar on them. For some so that was reason. the Highbury anniversary. They did a slightly darker red. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It's neat. Yeah, very good. Um, Graham, I come to you, last but not least, your favorite kit. And I know you have many, many, many in your possession. <laughs> is, is your choice one which you own as well, I shall ask? 
the, the, I mean, have we got a tight uh, 60 minutes on this for me to go through my favourite kits? <laughs> for you, I'm going to yeah. have to really, really cut it down. Uh, I'm actually going to, because I've got too many in my favourites list, I'm going to pick out a couple. Actually, I'll, I'll pick a favourite first of all. So France 98, Scotland's home kit at France 98. A anything really, Scot any Scotland kit really from the late 70s up to France 98 for me will always be a classic in my mind. There's just some timeless designs. There's a little bit of craziness in there around the early 90s. And it just kind of makes the current efforts just just look a little bit bland. The, the Euro 2020 shirt I thought was actually the worst uh, Scotland kit of my lifetime, which was a uh, good timing for for that to appear at a major <laughs> tournament. But I will pick out two kits that I think were real landmark kits. Um, one of them, the Netherlands home kit at the 1988 European Championships. That was a, a real watershed design. In case anyone doesn't know what that is, it's sort of like it's it's orange as Dutch kits tend to be, but it's it's kind of triangles and they all interlocking triangles and it, it really liberated clubs Oof. and national teams and so apparel great. makers in terms of how they could look at classic mm. designs in a new way. And so after that, you started to get a lot more creativity. Was that Lotto, Graham? Um, yes, it is Lotto. Yeah. That's correct. That's and it's an absolute classic. It, as I say, it's, it's a watershed kit. After that, you started to get loads more designs. And another, a more recent um, kind of watershed shed kit would be the Nigeria shirt for the 2018 World Cup. Um, that really started a trend of soccer shirts being streetwear, actually, and that sold out within minutes. It's still very difficult to get your hands on one. I don't have one. I've tried a number of times. And it really transitioned football shirts or soccer shirts into the same space that trainers or sneakers are in now the sort of I, I can't believe i'm going to say this but the hype beast culture i believe that's what it's called and i think the, pu the purest form of that soccer streetwear crossover you see now is the, the air jordan psg collaboration um, which is very much a clear ploy from psg to transcend soccer in the same way that Air Jordan transcend, transcended basketball all those years ago. So I've picked those two out. Not They are great kits. I love them. I just couldn't run you through all my favourites. But I've picked those two out because I think they are landmark kits kind of in the history of design of yeah. soccer shirts. Great choices. And the Nigeria one is a particular one I'd forgotten about, but that's wonderful. You're right. It was quite a landmark design and it still remains so. And even the ones that followed it have been pretty nice. But that one was... That, that was fantastic Graham good choice good choice all right gents I think that pretty much wraps up our look at kits we have looked through the history we looked through the numbers we looked through where we've been we look at where we're going with kits I think we can leave it there Taylor Rockwell thank you so much for your jersey expertise right back at you my friend Joe Lowry yours too sir you got it Ryan and Graham, this is the most excited I've ever heard you been. I hope you keep this energy up. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know how uh, football players sometimes can't sleep after a big match? That's, that's going to be me after this podcast. Just wired to the moon. At 3 a.m. rifling through your wardrobe in your office. I love to hear it, Graham. Oh, yeah, that's going to be me. All right. Thank you, listener. We'll catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>